Arthur German had an unhealthy fascination with his heritage. He traced it back to a place he did not want to go, to a people he did not want to be. In the end, given the choice to embrace his ancestry, he chose instead to embrace the void. this void quite calming actually it's like this time the xanax took me your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it it's like i'm in a black void trying to reach the news story this concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic what is real how do you define real if you're talking about what you can feel what you can smell you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 109 of Embrace the Void, where our Twitter mentions may never recover. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week joins me to discuss the human biodiversity movement, though many of its adherents seem to deny that any such movement actually exists. Uh, it's worth mentioning that this episode builds on my two-part debate with Bo Weingard, uh, though we do not mention it directly in the episode out of deference to Bo, who isn't here to defend himself, um, but that said, it's definitely worth a listen back. Uh, for now, though, let's listen forward. My guest this week is Kevin Bird, PhD student in evolutionary systems biology at Michigan State University and an active participant in the debate over human biodiversity. Kevin, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate you coming on to chat about this some. So we're going to talk about human biodiversity primarily, but I thought we could start by getting a little bit of sense of your background. Do you want to maybe explain to folks the elevator pitch for evolutionary systems biology and how you got into it and what in particular you study within that field? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, boy, systems biology is a little bit of a tough word. You'll get a lot of different answers uh, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, my perspective of it is and my research focuses on several levels of um, biological processes. So I do a lot of genomic analysis, a lot of transcriptomic analysis, which is kind of genes that are expressed, a lot of uh, epigenomic analysis, looking at regulation and, and silencing and turning off and on of genes, and a little bit of stress response and how all those systems react with their environment. The other half of that is looking at sort of families of genes and looking at how different groups of genes evolve and change through time across really like deep phylogenetic scales. Okay, maybe. And, and um, so, yeah, there's a lot of terms there, obviously, that we could spend a bunch of time <laughs> defining. But I think it might be yeah. helpful, maybe, if you like put it in like concrete terms, in sense of you know, what does a day look like for you, and like what are the things that you're studying, and like what might some of the applications be a little bit, perhaps. Yeah. So, so my research day to day is a lot of big data analysis. Um, the sort of flood of of omics data and biology is is what really fuels my research. I, I kind of sit in front of a computer and analyze data collected from plants that I grew up for an experiment. Um, I study mostly strawberry and uh, 
other general hybrid species, canola is, a, is one I'm focusing on right now. Mm-hmm. Why, why in particular those two species for you? Uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, pre-existing resources in terms of like germ plasms that the government has in terms of, uh, genome sequences that are like of really high quality. And in terms of, um, just the biological processes that led to those species are exactly what I'm interested in, which is what happens when two species hybridize, uh, for, for their long-term kind of evolutionary fate. And that's that's really like the the single sentence description of my research questions. Okay, and by hybridization, we're talking about like they. You want to dumb yeah. it down for us philosophers in the room? Yeah. So uh, so you have two different species that uh, have sex with each other, and mm-hmm. their offspring is a combination of those two different species, and and they're different sort of evolutionarily diverged genetic equipment. Okay, that's what I that's what I was thinking. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah. Um. So, do you feel like hybrid species are particularly fruitful as a form of research because they'll address particular issues that we're that we're facing right now? Or there's some really deep questions. So, hybridization and whole genome duplication, which is basically two things hybridize and then they double their genetic material, um, hmm. is is right before animals developed a vertebrae there was a, a genome duplication event um, right okay. before plants developed flowers. There was a ge- genome duplication event. So in one very basic scientific level, something about doubling your, your genetic material is tightly related to huge evolutionary innovations uh, okay. in the plant world. Pretty much every species that, that we eat is a, was a hybrid millions of years ago or is currently a hybrid. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like corn and wheat, cotton for textiles, strawberry, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's really kind of wild the extent to which the very small number of species we eat are all related to this same evolutionary phenomena. Yeah, that that's interesting. So, and so these sort of, uh, hybridization events are central to, to major leaps in evolution. It sounds like it's, it's funny. I feel like if we were living in a better timeline, you'd have the great perfect backstory for like turning into a superhero or supervillain as you prefer uh by becoming hybridized with one of your plants right like that's yeah. really you know you, you you get bit by a radioactive strawberry or something like that <laughs> yeah and all the all the powers of uh smelling good and uh having a sweet taste <laughs> yeah there you go those are some <laughs> sweet abilities um so i i was curious since this came up on um twitters that you and i are both way too on uh this past week you 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 could also probably tell us a lot about the sexes of asparagus couldn't you oh more than you would ever want to know uh which is is probably not much right i'll be honest but yeah i can tell you all about like the super males uh that exist that are key to asparagus breeding and stuff Um, okay now i'm curious super males yeah, so... Um, Do asparagus very, have alpha males? Yeah, basically. So the super <laughs> short version is, uh, unlike human X and Y chromosomes, which are very different in terms of like size, and uh, you can't have two Y chromosomes and be uh, viable. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's lost too many genes. Uh, the asparagus sex chromosomes are, are super recent, and they're actually, they only differ by a few um, hundred thousand base pairs. And there are some asparagus that have two Y chromosomes and they're called super males. 
And breeders love to have male asparagus, but only XY male asparagus. And so when you have an XX female and a YY male, every cross is an XY male. So uh, it's basically a, a quick and easy way for asparagus breeders to always get the type of asparagus that they want. And how do they sex the asparagus? Is there a phenotypic? Like, can you tell which ones are the are the super asparagus? Uh, so I, I don't know if there's a way to tell super males apart. I think you have to do... <laughs> You either have to n- verify, like, with some sort of genetic marker, the the seed that you have, or like trust your seed distributor. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never been on That's... like the production side of an asparagus farm. This is this is and like this is a great setup. I feel like for our hu- our biodiversity human discussion because my experience in learning about biology is like it's just an endless series of insane rabbit holes, each each weirder than the last, all like culminating in the world that already looks really weird to me, but is even super weirder under the surface. Um, what kind of like plant technology do you? And like I, I don't know if that's correct the correct way to put this. They seem to me to be technology at this point, yeah. right? Like, what kind of plant technology do you hope to see arise in the future? Like, do you feel like we're on the brink of any major plant technology breakthroughs? So, major breakthroughs may be a little bit hard hard for me to to think about. But so my one of my advisors is this the small berry breeder of Michigan State University. Um. And one of the reasons why he's been spending all this money, yeah, that's a position that exists. <laughs> um, I wanted to make a joke about academic um, uh, creep or something like that, but yeah. <laughs> so one of the reasons why he's been spending a lot of money on genome sequencing is that um, because these these plants have multiple sets of chromosomes, strawberry is basically a, a hybrid of four different species over a million years. It has four uh, independent sets of chromosomes, whereas, you know, you and me only have one set from each of our parents. Uh, Breeding is a lot harder when you just keep adding these independently assorting chromosome pairs. And so if you can just kind of peek under the hood of nature with uh, molecular genetic techniques, it's just quicker and easier and cheaper for everybody involved in production Uh and agriculture and breeding. Um, (laughs) So the uh, so the Punnett squares I learned in high school are bullshit. Is that what you're telling me? The Punnett square for for a strawberry, I th- we went ran through the math one time, and, and instead of being like two to the second, which is what happens with normal assortment, it's like two to the eighth. So everything is just sort of like exponentially uh, more space consuming and time consuming and and complex. Uh-huh. Um, so better to just get on. So are you? I'm curious. I don't if you don't want to talk about this, you don't have to. But um. Are you generally pro things like GMOs or what is so? GM, yeah, GMOs? GMO is a is a very useful method. Um, you know, seeing whether you're pro or anti GMO is kind of like, are you pro or anti like microscope uh, okay. or, or like X rays? Like, there's there's are you uses. pro or anti microscope? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you in the uh, pocket of big microscope? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it's a technique that that can be used for good and bad products. Um, some of the genetically modified technology out there, some of the genetically modified seeds out there probably aren't the best thing we could be doing right now. Uh, there are more clever or strategic things, but you know, the ability to transfer genetic material so directly and targeted is a valuable asset, uh, I think, to breeders and scientists. Okay, fair enough. Do you have any concern about sort of, um, I guess one example is... Uh, those crops interbreeding if you're a hybrid kind of guy right if those yeah uh, like gmos interbreed with wild species is that a concern 
Yeah, you know, that's that's something that can always happen. And it, it comes down to knowing who the wild relatives are uh, in the areas you're putting out GM crops. But people have mm-hmm. done simulations. As much as you can trust simulations, it, it ends up being that the things that we use GMO technology for in the field doesn't actually help natural crops all that much. So the, the, the genes don't spread, the alleles don't spread that quickly through the population because they're, they're just not like selectively advantageous. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you know, Fair enough. yeah, it, it depends case to case, but for the most part, like it can happen mm-hmm. and we watch out for it. Um, but it's not as disastrous as uh, some people might think. Well, finding out that anybody's watching out for it actually is a step up in the way that a level of concern that I was at. So that's good. Yeah. That seems um, quality. So um, let's maybe we'll switch gears right from something uncontroversial like GMOs to something slightly more controversial like uh, human biodiversity. So uh, this is something that I've seen you arguing at length. Um, online, um, do you want to maybe give folks just a quick primer on what human, what the human biodiversity movement is, what its major thesis is, what maybe are some concrete examples of the thing, the evidence that it points to? Yeah, so human biodiversity, the best way to describe it, I think, is that it's a moniker for things like race realism or really scientific racism, mm-hmm. and. Uh, this is going to just immediately put off the alarms of the human biodiversity people because they created this name to separate themselves from those sorts of things. But uh, now you're na- now you're name calling. Okay. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. So so get ready for all the replies for with ad homonyms and and mm-hmm. and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it's this twisted world where human populations, which are typically spoken in terms of races, are different, and they're different for genetic reasons that mm-hmm. are not amenable to environmental and social changes. That is not what they will say, but at length discussions, that is almost always what it turns into. Um, right. It's I always typically about races. It's always typically about traits of interest, normally like intelligence uh, or cognitive ability being genetically different between populations and something that's sort of innate. Uh, though they're mm-hmm. starting to shy away from the word innate because it's a minefield of a word to use. Sure. Yeah, it's a terrible word. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about how it looks like classical racism in some ways. But it seems like what you're saying is that it is it is in like an alt-right kind of rebranding attempt. Um, so in some ways, they must at least be right. You said it's not what they'll tell you, but it's how it works out by the end of the conversation. What will they tend to say at the beginning of the conversation? So a lot of it is is references toward folk intuitions, I would say, or like folk observations. Like obviously people are different. Like you can't mm-hmm. say that that uh, you know there's no difference between black and white people. Um, you know that's mm-hmm. I think that's a really common thing that I've seen. Or you know they're just interested in the variation that humans exhibit and and how uh, different groups and peoples will differ from each other. And kind of paint in this very broad and and innocuous way, right? And generally, it seems like portrayed as as earnest investigators who are who are tend tend to be um, maligned and and treated badly as a result of what they are yeah. particularly interested in researching. And and there's fair? this really there's this really interesting uh, t- turn that they do, and. I've spoken about this a little bit um, here and there online because I spend way too much time on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, when they start with this sort of innocuous phrasing of like, there's variation in humans. Not everyone is identical. Um, you know, those are things that's already covered by population genetics and anthropology in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, none of those people are aligned with the human biodiversity movement. There are no population geneticists that would identify as, as HBDers. There's no journal Mm -hmm. of human biodiversity. There's no society of human biodiversity. There's no conferences about human biodiversity. So you've mentioned yeah. population genetics and population science. How does that differ from human biodiversity? Why are these people not identifying in this way? Yeah, so generally, human population genetics studies the, the genetic differences and the variation in human populations. What they don't do is they don't really buy into essentialist ideas of race. They're typically accepting of what I would call a, a clear fact that human population and genetic variation doesn't reflect racial taxonomies. You know, there's no like, mm-hmm. you know, genetically coherent way to talk about white and black people. There's just too much underlying real diversity between groups of people uh, classified under those umbrella terms. Mm-hmm. And it's, this will kind of, I'll talk about this more later because I think it, it really is the centerpiece of my disagreement with human biodiversity. But it's, there's a lot more of data driven discussion rather than speculation and a particular type of data, mostly uh, building off of molecular genetic data mm-hmm. and genomic data. And so a lot of the claims made by human population geneticists are a lot more constrained than what you'll see from HBD people. Um, Gregory Cochran, for example, uh, if it's okay to just name drop people, yeah, uh, <laughs> has been making claims about you know natural selection favoring Ashkenazi Jew uh, Jewish intelligence uh, yeah, so for like decades, <laughs> decades yeah. before any evidence that could even conceivably show it uh, it was available, and then almost immediately. <laughs> His his favorite explanation, which was the kind of like lysosomic diseases like like Tay-Sachs and others, was immediately shown to both not be related and to not be selected upon in Ashkenazi populations. So it took like three or four years for his entire thesis, like the actual specific empirical claims that he made to be shown to be false by human population genetics. I see. So that did not go well for him. Um, well, he, I mean, he's still around and he's still talking about it. And you still have people like Emil Kierkegaard who will write a paper in a low impact kind of scam journal, making the claim that, again, he's found it with polygenic scores. And then the actual scientists have to come and write a rebuttal paper showing all the mistakes that they made in polygenic score analysis. And okay. um, <laughs> so let me let me. Simplify this back down again to some some basic <laughs> questions that you probably can't answer easily. Mm-hmm. Um, are there actual group differences in any kind of way that are biologically consistent? Uh, setting aside whether those count as races or not. Yeah. So there are differences between groups of people. There are differences between pretty much any group of people you could pick out. Uh, the same analyses that race realists and human biodiversity people like to point to uh, to try to claim that human races exist have actually been able to identify the exact same patterns between different counties in the United Kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. And it's related to really like reasonably well understood biological processes where 
the further you are away from someone, the mm-hmm. less genetically similar you'll be just almost purely based on how much you're able to interbreed with people in that population in that area. And it's called genetic drift. It's just sort of like mm-hmm. the random ebb and flow of genetic variance that happens. And it just kind of turns out that when you're far away from people, you're going to be like subtly different in allele frequencies. Mm-hmm. And that is detectable when you have millions of base pairs of genomic data to look at. It's sort of, you know, for statistics people um, with like an infinite uh, sample size, you, any difference between two samples is bound to be statistically significant. You just have such uh, such power to detect differences between groups that you will detect any difference, no matter how significant mm. in the real world it actually is, like what the, what the magnitude really is. Okay. So does this genetic drift play a role in what we conventionally experience as different groups of people, like in terms of phenotypic physical differences? No. So, so that's normally, um, that's normally the result of natural selection. So things like skin color are prime examples of natural selection. And there are kind of two important caveats with that, that make it difficult to, for the human biodiversity people to really kind of plug it into the rest of their worldview. And the, the first thing is we know quite a bit about the molecular genetics and the biochemistry and the mechanisms that lead to skin color differences that relate to fitness differences of people with different skin colors and different regions and the mm-hmm. genes involved and how they are different between populations. We don't know that for every trait. And actually just knowing that one trait between a group of people is, is selected on differently doesn't really tell you about any other trait because most traits are independent. So one thing was selected on the next thing is no more likely to be selected upon just knowing that like conditional on knowing that there is one trait that was selected on. Okay. So why is it not useful? Uh, I mean, what would the argument be then for why we shouldn't call these groups races or call make these distinctions based on some chunking of this genetic drift? Yeah, so so two reasons I would say. The first is if you just look at black skin color, there are a lot of like populations and groups of black skin color that are not actually that genetically related. So you can look mm-hmm. at regions in uh, India and in like Melanesia, and the the skin color is is roughly the same, but these are distinct genetic groups, or the, these are detectably different populations. Uh, just in the way that like their mi- migratory history and their their demographic uh, history in terms of like you know most recent ancestors, mm-hmm. right? So, so you'd have to so, subdivide yeah, these groups down in some way. Yeah, and so 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 these are it's an umbrella term that just sort of like collapses very different things. Now the reason why you couldn't just call these like detectable genetically different populations races is. Like I said before, the same ability Mm -hmm. to discern populations exists at pretty much any spatial level in humans. So if you want to call people from uh, sub-Saharan Africa and people from Europe different races, you have to explain why people from different counties in the UK also aren't different races because it's the same processes and the same methodology giving you 
pretty much the same kind of result that these two things are detectably different. And mm-hmm. to, to, to kind of build off of that, there is a science or a scientific field whose, in, whose intentions is to identify important and meaningful divisions in the biological world. And that is systematics and phylogenetics. And so there are these community standards that are essentially drawn up by consensus and evidence to say, these are the types of relationships that we value and we value them because of how they relate to core tenets of evolutionary theory. And these are the standards that we use to say when something does or does not meet uh, that's the types of divisions that we want to make in the world. Okay. So if all, I mean, it sounds like a lot of this stuff has been heavily researched and worked out. So I, I think it would be, why, why would there be this level of, um, sort of this, these conversations aren't being allowed to be had meta conversation around human biodiversity. Is there, are, what are the claims that they're making that go above and beyond population in such a way that like there needs to be this whole meta conversation of people being silenced and such? So yeah, that's a good question. I think what it comes down to is most of the people in the human biodiversity movement I don't think actually know about a lot of these conversations because most of them are not evolutionary biologists uh, in a more mainstream sense. They're not geneticists. They're not population geneticists. So they're people who have entered the field without the background of, you know, knowing the last 40 to 50 years of debate in systematic biology. Mm -hmm. And I think the other, the other part there is, I don't think that they're actually interested in the science Okay. Uh, because if they're, if they're interested in the science, I think they would just be population geneticists. I think they're interested in racial differences and justifying racial differences in terms of biology and sort of naturalizing these differences for ideological reasons. That's the pattern and that's kind of the impression that I get from from most of these people because uh, if if there was true interest in them, it would be expressed very differently and it wouldn't need its own movement that's sort of divorced from the actual scientific communities mm-hmm. that perform the exact same functions that they purport to be interested in. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. So, and I, obviously it's hard to, you know, we want to be careful not to like assume the motives of people or something like that, um, but... Uh, it does. It does seem like a significant question in need of answering, um, and I think that is at least what what you've given is at least one plausible um, explanation. You know, I don't want to like do too much of of you know uh, reading other people's minds or you know asking like, well, why is this particular person adopting the particular views or something like that. Um, I want to go back to something. Let's go back to something concrete that you mentioned earlier. So, um, if population groups have largely to do with who you have access to as a mate, and that has largely to do with distance. Um, I had seen some work that was sort of suggesting that, like, as humans have become able to travel more, um, that these population groups have substantially broken down in large ways. And I'm curious about that in particular with regard to um, Ashkenazi Jews, who are a well-known diaspora, um, and how that can, should still should that still count as a population in the kind of ways that you're describing or is it only like small specific orthodox communities that should be viewed as these kind of subpopulations 
Yeah, and I think this kind of gets to the root of the 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 challenge of, of like self identity and and the ways that um sort of like the narratives and the stories that we have of our life can differ sometimes from what we think is underlying that identity. So like like you talked about as people have started moving across the world and across countries and we're, we're more mobile than we've ever been. Although the exact same kind of mobility is detectable in ancient migrations and movements that mm-hmm. have mixed different populations together. I mean, literally since humans have uh, left Africa and while we were in Africa, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, there's this, yeah, this, this mixing of populations. It's, it's referred to kind of technically as admixture mm-hmm. and admixture also poses a pretty interesting problem be- for, for the, these identity groups. Cause for example, like um, Ashkenazi Jews or African Americans, there can be such a highly variable amount of African ancestry or uh, Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry mm-hmm. that, to group them all together as like a coherent identity mm-hmm. from a biological standpoint is questionable. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's actually really difficult to give a, a reason why someone who is African-American and has uh, 20% like European ancestry and someone who is African-American and has 80% European ancestry as mm-hmm. being, you know, from the same group because these underlying uh, aspects and processes that we use to separate them are just wildly different. And so that's definitely a reason why not just have race or groups now are, are the lines are blurring in several kind of distinct ways, but the lines have always been kind of blurry and distinct because uh, mm-hmm. humans have always been moving around and traveling great distances and having sex with different groups that they experience along the way. And whenever that happens, Preach. the entire yeah. sort of, the entire sort of like, uh, you know, genetic stock just gets all mixed up and things just kind of turn over and blend. And that's really why it's so difficult to draw these stark and clear lines for humans, even though using the same standards, you can draw pretty similar stark and clear lines in many other systems. Because I'm a giant Dune uh, nerd. I don't know if you've read the Dune books. Um, the main character is obsessed with a coming giant holy war that'll rage across the universe which he discovers is a adaptive evolutionary advantage of the human species to engage in these massive wars uh because it spreads the genes right it mixes the genes around you would you agree that like large-scale conflicts like that can be adaptive in that kind of way that's a good question so i think I would I would caution whether or not it's really like an adaptive mechanism because the way it would be selected is mm-hmm. hard to imagine and really hard to prove with the data that we sort of require to make claims like that. But I okay. mean, it's definitely the case that, you know, if you read like David Reich's work, uh, who the really famous uh, Harvard mm-hmm. biologist who does a lot of ancient genomics work, these events where wars happen or populations will move in and sort of like replace the existing population for some reason we don't fully understand just looking at sequence data. Mm-hmm. Those leave huge marks on the genomes uh, of, of existing people and, and ancient peoples. And so 
one of the crazy things that happen is that because of the way that these turnovers happen through war or, or whatever processes is uh, the people who are in England uh, like several thousand years ago are mm-hmm. genetically very distinct from the people who are in England right now. Hmm. And so, I mean, there is something to say that an offshoot of huge regional conflicts is that the victor ends up really changing the genetic landscape of mm-hmm. the people who continue to exist in that area post-conflict. Right, that makes sense. And I think the, the Brexiteers are going to be really sad to hear what you just said. So I know, yeah. Um, oh, it's so no, funny. Uh, not that um, any of them listen, but... Adam Rutherford talks about that all the time, and people get so mad at him. <laughs> oh, he's just like, you're, none of you are British. <laughs> yeah. Like, where, oh, where do we funny. define real British people? Because depending on what time point you select real British people, none of us are real British people. Right. Yeah, so... so as much as I love to make fun of the, the British people, I'm, I'm more personally fixated on the Jewish question still, because apparently this is an ongoing question still in evolutionary psychology as well. What are we to make, given what you were saying about um, Ashkenazi Jews um, being spread out in that way, what are we to make of claims that Jews are on average smarter or that groups' IQs are on average higher, for example? Yeah, so I will admit this much. By at least changing the conversation to uh, Ashkenazi Jews, it is a more reasonable hypothesis um, because at least in that context, there's a little bit more coherence to that category than like black people. Um, Okay. But that's sort of, that's kind of where my, my leniency ends because now we enter the world where we should be doing science and we should Mm -hmm. be scientifically analyzing these claims. And None of the data pans out on this. The standards that we would use for any other analysis for selection and population differences between uh, identified groups are they either haven't been conducted or the results that they have do not really confirm this hypothesis. Or Okay. Yeah. To, to, to accidentally step myself into a confirmationist view of philosophy of science. Yeah, way to go. You're going to get totally canceled for that and for apparently telling Jews that they're dumb. So good job on both ends there. Um, um, so, generally so, yeah, the way- so regardless of what like IQ test data shows, which I, I try to stay as far away from uh, conversations about IQ test data because <laughs> I'm not a psychometrician. And because you want to avoid can, the truth, I understand. Yeah, uh, you know, even if we take that data as accurate, a genetic explanation just isn't supported by any data that exists right now. Any data that an evolutionary biologist would actually care about, which at this point in the scientific field is molecular genetic data, genomic mm-hmm. sequence data. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the pushback there, I think, would be if I if I can have the devil's advocate right here. Um, IQ is uh, what fifty percent heritable or something like that, right? That can you explain the heritability um, back and forth on that part of things? Yeah, so this is also set just a very fun conversation uh, and, uh-huh. and topic to talk because so heritability is a very old concept in quantitative genetics, and it was largely introduced in the context of plant and animal breeding. Okay, and while because of how the word sounds, it sounds like heritability is telling you like how genetic something is or how much of its cause is related to genes. How much you inherit, right? Yeah. But what it actually tells you is a really 
particular and like specific statistical concept, which is in a population at a given time, how much variance in the phenotype is uh, linearly associated with variance in the genotype. And that (laughs) exactly. No, no, exactly. And that's actually kind of all you need to know is that what heritability means is is completely different from how people try to talk about heritability. Uh, Heritability is not related to uh, the cause of things. Uh, Something Mm -hmm. can be 100 percent heritable and it can be caused by it. It it cannot be caused by by genes or or vice versa. Um, A really common example is what's the what's the real what's the really okay so let's talk about like number of eyes that people have okay now now in in most populations everyone will have two eyes or they'll have genes to produce two eyes the genetic programming that like works through development to produce two eyes not yes, everyone all of us in normal the human humans population. totally have two eyes i totally yeah. i'm, I'm yeah. with you i have exactly two eyes so so yeah so kind of holding constant that that doesn't that doesn't hold true for literally everybody in most kind of sampling schemes you would do in the world you're probably going to get the case that um people have two eyes now some people do have less than two eyes and the reason they have less than two eyes is they were in some sort of like uh like a shop accident or like a manufacturing accident or something happened in their environment that mm-hmm. uh that caused them to lose an eye but they became a the pirate, actual I understand. yeah the, the actual like genetic variants aren't different between like eyeness um <laughs> and so you have something that i think most people would say the number of eyes you have like like having two eyes is, is caused by your genes that is like a mm-hmm. genetically programmed aspect of human biological development and but the heritability of that would be zero in most populations because there's no genetic variation for eye number in the population you're sampling and hmm. all the variation in how many eyes people have is because of the environment, because like, you know, they were working at like the Ford plant and there was some problem on the assembly line and like some, some scrap metal went into their eye and caused them to have to have it like surgically removed. Okay. Right. So eye numbers are Lamarckian, I guess, in that kind of way. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's actually kind of another thing. Like heritability doesn't tell you all that much about, you know, moving on to the next generation. It is, it is a snapshot in time of like variance components, which is just okay. kind of like this, this statistical modeling output. And that's like, a, this is really jargony. Um, yeah. And I apologize okay. for that, but also the concept is jargony. It's a very specific concept in quantitative genetics. And yeah. it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of being misused because people don't fully understand it. And it sounds like it means a lot more than it does. And this is a discussion that is just like decades old. Um, uh huh. Uh-huh. And, and just the most frustrating way of trying to explain what heritability means. And most plant and animal breeders, I think, would understand this pretty well mm-hmm. because there's not the same. There's no human biodiversity people. Well, that's kind of definitional. Right. Human biodiversity like movements don't exist in other like systems. It's strangely enough only for humans and only about racial groups. Interesting. That That is, I guess, an important data point in itself. So what would be, let me, let me, let me ask it this way. Um, would you say that 
if you were looking for explanations for let's let's assume that they're real for a second differences in IQ between populations are you more likely to assume, to believe or 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 think that it's uh environmental by nature um and do you it's sort of connected to that what do you think of the the sort of common pushback from folks in in the human biodiversity movement which seems to be the left people on the left always downplay genetic explanations because they want to play up systemic injustice explanations yeah okay so let let me let me stew on this for a second and feel free to caveat as much as you want on like you yeah. don't know the details of the way pop uh, iqs work in particular because yeah. you're used to vegetables i get that yeah so really for any trait it's all kind of weighing evidence the same way i would weigh it in the research questions that I ask or the research questions that I know my colleagues ask. So like heritability doesn't tell you that much about differences between groups. It's actually just not a measurement that tells you information about the differences between groups. You can Mm -hmm. have groups that are different in a trait and that difference is heritable in both populations, but the difference between them is not heritable. And that happens theoretically and in the real world. Mm -hmm. What, the way, like I said, the way I approach this is is the way that the field of evolutionary biology approaches these types of questions. So the the first is the null hypothesis is just sort of that it's it's not genetic, um, mm-hmm. and that's just because like you need something to to kind of test against. But there's there's certain evidence that needs to be shown that would make you think that it's genetic, and so the easiest way to do this is to find the genetic variants that are causing the trait. And that's a really, really important language thing there. Causes the trait, because right now we Mm -hmm. don't have as much causal evidence as we really think. And Mm -hmm. then look at how they differ between the populations. And so this could work for things like genetic drift. So Tay-Sachs disease is pretty much prevalent in Ashkenazi Jewish populations because of genetic drift. It's It's a single gene disease. There was a huge bottleneck and just by random chance that gene rose in frequency. And even though now there's sort of like genetic counselors that are actually doing a really good job of reducing the frequency of the disease, hmm. uh, that is kind of like the way that that disease rose to high frequency. Generally though, selection is what creates differences between populations because genetic drift is unlikely after a certain point to lead to huge differences when it has to work on like millions or thousands of, of genetic variants, Mm. because basically every time genetic genetic drift works, you would flip a coin of whether or not it's going to favor population a or population B. And you wouldn't really expect a lot of bias to be towards one population over the other, because they're all, you know, kind of independent coin flips. So selection is kind of what we expect to be the the driving force of differences between populations. And Mm -hmm. there is a lot of evidence that you need to show that selection has occurred. Um, So just kind of to, to summarize, like the golden standard of what evidence for selection would look like in mainstream evolutionary biology is Mm -hmm. you would identify a gene or a variant of a gene that contributes to the trait that we're interested in that has some sort of verified causal relationship to the trait. And normally that requires 
a lot of like molecular biology technique in, in mm-hmm. my field. We can do these wonderful things where we uh, insert the gene that we're interested in, in a, in a, like a, an understood genetic background. So like the only thing that's different is this gene that we're curious about. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also do sort of knockout experiments where you get rid of a gene in an individual and look at what the effect is. Uh, you can increase its expression, reduce its expression. Like we actually have our thumbs on the activity and the presence of these genes that we can experimentally manipulate to see what its effect is on the trait. Which You're is, not allowed to do that on humans, I assume. You right? can't, you can't, be, you can't, can't do that in humans. In humans. <laughs> yeah. not, only, not only should you not, we can't do it right now. Uh, okay. and fair enough um so that it's a big issue uh like one yeah. of every paper in plant biology plant genetics that gets into a reasonably high impact journal mm-hmm. has to do what i just described which is typically called functional validation you need mm-hmm. to verify that the gene that you've identified through statistical methods has the function that you say it does mm-hmm Another thing you have to do is you don't just have to know the genes related to that difference. You need to show that that gene has been selected. And so we have models and statistical techniques that are designed to tell us whether or not a specific genetic variant matches what we would expect if it was selected. Uh That's kind of a a tough way to describe, but that's pretty much the exact way that we do it Uh, because of of theoretical mathematics that people did in like the seventies and the eighties, we have ideas of what the effect of selection should be. And we can look at the patterns of genetic variation around in human in genomes and around certain genes. And we can say this matches what we would expect if it was selected. Okay. So if we, are there any sufficiently passive, non-invasive methods of confirming these kind of genetic relationships that we can use on humans? So that one's actually the easiest one. We just okay. get DNA sequences and mm-hmm. we analyze them for different statistical patterns. And that is is what most um, what most human population genetics papers end up doing. And the ones that really go for gold will do uh, validation experiments in like mice with like uh-huh. mice knockouts. So that's the easy part, actually, like looking across the genome and seeing, hmm, does this look like it should if it was selected um, by natural selection or pretty much natural selection? Um, Yeah. So I want to circle back to something you said in there. Um, Sorry. No, I was just you you mentioned something really interesting in there when you mentioned Tay-Sachs and that there are genetic counselors who are are sort of helping to solve that problem in those populations or, or sort of tamp it down some wouldn't would that sort of be a step towards the blending of that i mean like if if the populations are distinguished partly by the existence of these traits especially for the human biodiversity folks right if you're getting rid of that difference are you in a sense taking away one of the things that distinguishes one one race from another in this kind of way um and wouldn't that point to the malleability of all of these groups in this kind of way yeah, I think that's a that's that's a really good point. That that's something that is kind of overlooked a lot, um, and ties into some of the, some of the things I was saying about sort of like heritability and then how we actually see variation between things. Absolutely, the the way that the human biodiversity group and movement kind of decides what a population is is, I see these two groups of people, I see these two differences between them. This is how I'm going to divide them. Or this is mm-hmm. what my justification for dividing them. 
Um, but, you know, nothing is really set in stone biologically. Everything is always sort of changing in frequency and the way that it reacts with the world is changing through all, all the kind of like cultural and social processes that humans do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it'd be a lot, it'd be actually be a lot sooner for me. 150 years ago, 500 years ago, like me needing glasses would be really bad. Right. Um, 60 years ago, me having a, a congenital heart defect would be really bad. And like, I wouldn't make it. Um, but uh-huh. I'm here I am today. And, and, you know, it, it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> <Mazel really. tov. laughs> yeah. Um, and so as, as sort of the environment that we occupy changes because of the way that we have sort of like taken the reins of the world and changed how things are through technology and, and societies and development and culture um, that has an impact on how genes are mixed in and passed on through generations so mm. all these things that people are pointing to right now as like the dividing lines between groups might not hold in 200 years in mm-hmm. a thousand years. Like it definitely won't hold past, you know, you know, 5,000, 10,000 years. Um, all sorts mm. of stuff will be happening. Interesting. Um, so we're running a little short on time, but I have one other, a few other, one or two other questions. One was, I'm curious how much of this can translate over versus would have to be adapted when talking about sexes, biological sexes rather than races. Do you feel like there are differences in those kind of groups and their differences? Yeah. So I do think that there's, there's differences in the groups. I, to me, it, it's actually the issue with biological sexes still kind of relates to how we actually engage with the data and how we interpret the data with that we have in front of mm. us in ways more in line with, I think, mainstream scientific processes. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlike race where, well, you know, now that I, now that I think about it, it actually is kind of a, a similar issue, which is that there's a general usage that uh, is distinct from technical concepts that it's claimed to to kind of derive from. Mm-hmm. So there's about one consistent difference between males and females that would hold throughout the entire domain of science. Okay, and 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 it's gamete size, right? Uh, you, and 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 to make that work, you have to do two things, which is kind of make the definite the things definitional, where male is the small gamete morph mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. female is the large gamete morph. The bigger problem, I think, that even even beyond uh, you know the accuracy of that is, does that actually match the way that we use these concepts in the real world outside of like a very narrow discipline of uh, mm-hmm. like the entire like sexually reproducing domains of life because the last time i checked like people who are infertile or don't produce gametes are still sexed in their day-to-day life right and so like that disjunction is is where i think the problem is and in that case unlike in in race where i think because there's this particular evolutionary usage that hbd proponents are trying to make where we want to understand the evolutionary differences between these groups in that mm-hmm. case, you should use the evolutionarily uh, like defined concept of race that population genetics uses and then rejected for human populations. 
Uh-huh, I see. Whereas in the social domain, the way that we use sex day to day, the way that we like call people female or male and make that decision is actually really, really, really far removed from what gametes they produce. Um, right. Absolutely. So, you know, no one, no one scans for those things. It, it sort of has this, it's, it's given to people based off of like inferential reasoning of a few indicators that hold a lot less, co- like are, are a lot less common to hold than people expect. Uh-huh. And so, so I think it's the same it's the same kind of issue, this division between uh, how a concept is used outside the field of science and how the concept is used inside the field of science. Mm-hmm. It's just I think that there are particular reasons why you would go one way with race and the other way with sex. Interesting. So, I mean, there are going to be some folks who are going to argue that, like, any scientific arguments that you present. So first, I mean, they're going to say that there are scientists who ha- hold the positions that they hold and that you know they may be sort of a minority or they may be sort of pushed out for a variety of reasons and that as a result and a result of other reasons um you know any evidence that you put forward is treated as questionable because the data has been corrupted by the prevalence the pervasiveness of this left-wing ideology how do you feel is there any way to like overcome that particular perspective or is 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 data just not going to be useful in that particular stage of the conversation do you think i think i think data just isn't useful there are some forms of data that i think can be informative so the more that we understand the actual variability of the way that people's um sex chromosomes their gametes their hormones how that varies across humans, I think will actually kind of bring to light the fact that we're using a very overly simplistic picture of understanding variation in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think deep, deeper, it's just, it's more of a, of, of kind of a philosophical issue of how the term is used and how the term ought to be used given kind of, the information that we have in our day-to-day lives and the way that we understand this diversity and variation of people that actually exists. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because if we're going to be going through all these things and never identifying gametes and we're going to be making inferences, then we should probably change our understanding of how likely the things that we make inferences based off of actually fail to conform to our biases. Mm -hmm. And like that, 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 that to me is like, that's a loosely empirical question, but I don't think it's, it's, it's actually that, it's not going to be swayed by data as much as it's going to be swayed by more introspection in the way that we choose to use categories and construct categories. And that also requires that we recognize that we construct these categories. Yeah. So if you had to sort of predict or guess, where do you feel like the human biodiversity movement is headed or is going to be in 10 years or so? Do you have any sense of that? So I imagine there's still going to be people making claims based off of whatever the new technology is. Uh, It's pretty much been around since like Galton in the early 20th century. uh, And since the eugenics movement was really popular and widespread. And the only thing that's making me hopeful right now is the group is, is losing legitimate figureheads because the rest of mainstream science is, is, moving without them it's moving past their ideas so Mm -hmm. uh you know francis galton was a hugely impactful 
field-changing scientist, and he was a racist and a eugenicist, like through right. and through. <laughs> um, then you fast forward a little that, bit. That happens, and, you know. Yeah. yeah, Eugenics really like phased out of popularity after World War II for very obvious and understandable and valid reasons. And mm-hmm. it, it resurged again after people who were previously racist and eugenicist uh, were no longer in the limelight. And so they started forming like shadow organizations like the Pioneer Fund. And they found people like Richard Lynn and uh, J. Philippe Rushton and Linda Godfordson. And they, they started creating uh, a new race science factory with really prominent psychologists. Yes, I just read and, a long thread about this from um, Simon Witten. Did you read that giant yeah, hundred? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great thread. And, and Angela Sayini's book, Superior, is also a great uh, history of, of those sorts of things. Wasn't that the book that, that like... Some the of our and HBD friends, yes, yeah, they, oh know. yeah, uh, yeah. So, so, the, so, yeah. So they, rev- they re- review that. I mean, it's funny because Noah Carl is deeply embedded within the exact organizations and groups that Sione criticizes there, and so, you know, in my eye, there's a very vested interest in trying to undermine the legitimacy of that book when it's mm-hmm. calling out exactly your compatriots. Yeah, and um, wasn't that the article where they mentioned craniometrics, I think? Yeah, that's the one that just got everyone to call Quillette uh phrenology magazine, right, which, is, which, which was which is perfect. Which is technically not accurate, I understand. Phrenology no, it, no, involves um compartmentalized or, or um module style views about the brain which they don't hold or something like that, right? Cr- craniometry was a, a methodology used for phrenology and like inferences made from phrenology, but they're not uh, isomorphic things. Uh-huh. Um, I still think that calling them phrenologists, phrenologists is true in spirit, and so I, I hold steadfast to doing it. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but 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 literally, it is inaccurate, uh, and so they can all take solace that they have got me on tape saying that it's literally inaccurate to call them phrenologists. Uh, yeah, I expect you will be canceled shortly. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but so. So what's happening now is is there is no one with the same legitimacy and power in the field that Galton had or that Richard Lynn had or Arthur Jensen. Um, as time has moved on and as the rest of the field fields of science related to these questions have uh, recognized them to be lacking in evidence and justification, it has become less popular and and less credible people are the figureheads of the movement. And so I hope that in uh, a couple decades that there are not people with a reputation in the field who are also spearheading these sort of uh, race mm-hmm. science movements like there have been in the past. It's, it's, it's already largely fizzling out within academia. Mm-hmm. And so once that happens, it's it's a different ball game, I think, in the same way that dealing with like creationists and climate change deniers and anti-vaxxers is different because they're not actively kind of infiltrating academia to produce research in a line like uh-huh. formal academic reputable so pro academic deplatforming is what you're saying and. I will you're let you're market- okay with us spending the rest of our lives hearing about how these people have been excluded from academia because people are afraid of the truth. 
I will let the marketplace of ideas take care of them at its natural pace. <laughs> Academic libertarian. Um, that's, a, that's a very optimistic place for you to end it um, there. And I want to get to our realism, anti-realism lightning round before we run out of time. Um, this is something that we like to end the show with um, that we normally do with philosophers uh, because we have a lot of them on the show. But I'm curious, actually, to get a biologist's take on this. Um, I, so I'll, I'll, I'll warn you that it's it's not... I'm not a pure biologist because I do have okay, a bachelor's in philosophy and philosophy of biology oh, okay. and science. So this is not totally outside of your wheelhouse and won't seem as absurd to you as it would have otherwise. No. Um, but uh, so in case you're not familiar how the game goes, right, you have to say real real or not real for the list of things that I'm about to um, put to you. Um, you're not allowed to hedge, but you also don't have to define what the terms mean. So you can hedge <laughs> later um, when you get canceled on Twitter. Yeah. All right, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Is your readiness real? Uh, yes. Okay. Is the external world real? Yes. Phenomenal consciousness? Uh, no. <laughs> Qualia? Yes. <laughs> what? <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough. Free will? Yes. Okay. Selves? Yes. Mm. Personal identity? Yes. Genders? <laughs> uh, yeah. This is the part you're supposed to have an easier time with. <laughs> Deflationary realist. Uh, races? No. Okay. Species? No. Okay, there we go. Uh, morality? No. Okay. Rights? No. Uh-huh. Knowledge? Yes. You're really thinking, you're just taking this super seriously. I love it. Uh, <laughs> modalities. Oh, gosh. Um, no. That's right. Think back to your David Lewis. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, gods. No. Society. Ooh, yeah. It has to be. Okay. Numbers. No. Mm, abstract entities. No. Fictional characters. No chairs no sandwiches uh yes but don't oh i can't caveat <laughs> <laughs> no caveats this is real uh science yes uh-huh and finally natural laws no not not at all okay well done you made it <laughs> how do you feel oh wow there are so many terms that i've forgotten already <laughs> there are so many things i just think it's so fun to like think of all of the things people have argued are real or not real there's just a <laughs> hilarious list um so thank you kevin for coming on and talking about this stuff do you want to let folks know where they can find you and your work yeah so uh you can find me on twitter.com uh my handle is at its bird <laughs> And it'll probably be written out here somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I guess if you want to follow me anywhere else, I have a scholar profile, a ResearchGate profile, and a personal website that you can find through all three of those, I believe. Um, so if you want to know all the things happening in strawberries and uh, canola plants, then uh, keep a lookout. Academic personal websites are so hot these days. <laughs> it's, a tough, it's, a, it's a tough market. We have to survive. That's right. Got a brand. Um, well, thank you so much. And I will look forward to following your continued arguments on Twitter. Um, and I imagine we'll have you back on again at some point to maybe discuss canolas. Awesome.
thank you so much to all our listeners and especially our patrons for making all of this possible. Thank you to our 20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent and existence makes my pussy throb. Good morning, Camp Quest. Jonathan Steele is a great dad fund. And Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman. And thank you, as always, to our $40 top tier, clearly supports us deeply, Dave Maslich. You all are heroes. We really couldn't do this without you. If you'd like to support the show, uh, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on uh, whatever podcast app you use. Please follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And support us financially, if you can, at patreon.com slash embrace the void. We really couldn't do this without you. Because remember, you are the void, and the void is you.